most of us as reasonable people believe that we could never kill another human being. But if backed into a corner, pushed beyond reason, could you take someone's life? How much can a human being withstand before they reach their breaking point and with no other alternative decide to do the unthinkable? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. A serial killer once looked me in the eyes and told me this. Phelps, if you had to, you could kill someone. Anyone can. And if you can kill one person, you have it in you to do it again and again. And then, you know what? You're no different than me. I think his logic is flawed, but this is a fair question. Can any of us take a human life? Is the murder gene in all of us? Is it an inherent part of human nature? This week's story explores these questions, but even more importantly, this case makes transparent a sickening part of American society you will never hear me stop talking about on this show, violence against women. And I need to apologize up front here for something, and that's heading back into Florida for yet another episode. But to my defense, we haven't been here in a while on Crossing the Line. Listen, Phelps, Florida is a nice state. I mean, your life might be murder, 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 so you don't see the beauty of it, but Phelps, it has Disney World. You know, I'm actually going to Florida on a vacation in November, so I I, I guess you can say that. And I would agree. And by the way, that's Catherine, my producer, who is the Hi. other half of the CTL team you will hear from time to time. And she raises a point, one I have been asked by listeners, what is my issue with Florida? And honestly, for the most part, I'm just poking some fun here. There's a lot of murder stories in Florida. I've spent a lot of time in Florida investigating those murder stories and The reality is a lot of the true crime on TV and in books and podcasts takes place in Florida. So the question becomes, why is that? Well, one reason is that Florida has one of the most liberal open records policies in the country, which makes it easy for journalists to get important information about cases. And Florida is okay with allowing journalists like me to speak with inmates and perpetrators. The other reason is murder seems more likely to happen in transient states like Florida. People travel in and out of that state in very large numbers. Anyway, let's head just outside Orlando in Orange County, where this week's case takes place. Winter Park, Florida was built really as a resort community. Residents there are mostly middle class, and it's sort of a place where you go to chill and enjoy the benefits of having worked your entire life. The weather is nearly perfect year-round, and there's only about twenty-five to 30,000 people in the city, give or take, not to mention you can golf yourself into a coma if you choose. 
As you'll hear in this clip from a 911 call, however, Winter Park, like many suburban communities all over this country, is not immune to crime and, well, possibly even murder. The woman is crying. There's anguish in her voice. It's January 12, 2019. Her name is Danielle Redlick. Danielle is 45 years old. She and her husband, Michael, live in a fairly swanky white stucco home with those red clay tile shingles so prominent in Florida. They drive a convertible Audi A4, a Lexus sedan, and a Lexus SUV. There's a lot of money there in those three vehicles. So the Red Licks are doing just fine, financially speaking. Money is not an issue and good thing because they have plenty of other issues to contend with. Here is Danielle again after some crosstalk between 911 operators and law enforcement. And they come back and ask Danielle once again, what happened? I believe my husband is deceased. Okay. And why do you believe he's deceased? Because he's been, uh, I, I just, he's stiff and he's, he's been wounded. He might have had a heart attack. I don't know. Okay. Did you just find him? No, actually. It happened last night. That last line, quote, no, actually. It happened last night, end quote. You see, Danielle was calling into 911 about her deceased husband 11 hours after the incident that resulted in his death, nearly a half day later. Well, I take it back. Only in Florida. (laughs) And she thinks she's going to get away with it, I'm sure. According to Danielle, 65-year-old Michael Redlick is on the floor, stiff and very much dead. My guess is that it wasn't from a heart attack. But let's get a few more facts from Danielle's 911 call. So did you find him this morning? Because I know you said that you believed it happened last night. Did you see him last night? Was he okay or was... He was not okay last night. We had we had altercation and he stabbed himself. And I ran into the bathroom and then I came out. I tried to help him. I thought he was lying in blood. And then... Okay. I tried to help him, and I couldn't. Correct. Yes. All right. And then I tried to help him, and I saw, I woke up with sitting up next to him, and uh-huh. I was trying to figure out what to do. Right. I got you. I'm going to get you some help, man. So now we have an interesting dilemma. She says he stabbed himself after they had an altercation. Are there any weapons? On scene now? Oh, nice. There is blood, I should say, all over this house. On the walls, the floor, the carpet, on door jams. This is obviously not a heart attack. But back to Danielle once more. Okay, so Danielle, let me ask you this. So did he stab himself last night and he passed last night and you just didn't know what to do? Correct, I believe so, yes. Okay. Were you all drinking? He was. He was? Yes, he was. She goes on to explain that there was an altercation the night before he stabbed himself and that he was drinking then, too. 
In response to that, she took her kids and left the house. The kids, thank God, were not at home during the event in which Michael allegedly stabbed himself and wound up dead. The dispatcher asks about the heart attack. Was it that, or did he die from stabbing himself? I mean, listening, it sounds confusing and sketchy, as if Danielle is, well, lying. Sounds more like a Dateline NBC scenario. Wife kills husband or husband kills wife. Maybe she had, in fact, stabbed her husband to death in a flurry of rage, spattering blood everywhere, and then she let him lie there for a half a day until he finally bled out and died. He was so shocked that his wife stabbed him that he had a heart attack and that's what he died of? I mean, we all ultimately die of a heart attack. I mean, yeah, that's kind of true. Right? So she's factually right. Right. Okay? It's how- His heart did stop. It's what caused the heart attack. Was it high cholesterol or was it a stabbing? Bleeding out. Yeah. Danielle tells the dispatcher that the stab wound is on his shoulder, so she thinks the wound, the trauma associated with it, triggered the heart attack. What I'm interested in is how women are viewed within a domestic situation and how judged they are right away. If you've heard any of my work, you know I advocate for women's rights and I defend victims of crime regardless of what they have done. That will become significant as we explore this case. Details will become very important. Past behavior which is always a good indication of future behavior, will become vital. The dynamics these people lived under will become central. What I am trying to say, I think, is we need to take everything into account as this case unfolds. So a detective arrives at the house around 10 p.m. to find Danielle standing in front of the home's garage with first responders. She is disheveled, shaken, scared, and crying. She is dressed in all black and has a few wounds and also blood on her. The detective notices right away that both of Danielle's wrists are bandaged. Quote, she slit her wrists with a knife, someone on scene tells the detective. They are in process of getting her to the hospital to treat those wounds. Along the driveway... There are several broken eggs. Inside and outside Michael Redlick's vehicle, parked nearby, are more broken eggs. What? I mean, it's not Halloween. Yeah, it's like while this whole thing is happening, there's like kids outside teepeeing and egging the house. But keep those broken eggs in mind. We're going to get to that. Okay. The detective chats with Danielle briefly and walks into the home through the front door. And there is Mike, lying on the floor of the foyer, on his back, his arms stretched out in a T position, kind of like Jesus on the cross. He's wearing jeans and socks, no shirt. His jeans are, quote, saturated with blood, end quote. He has a noticeable wound on his left eye and a wound on his left shoulder, just as Danielle had described to 911. Lying near and around his head, as well as his right side and right foot, are several towels, all of which are saturated with blood. Around Mike's body on the floor tile, there are blood swirl marks in a circular pattern and a trail of blood leading to the master bedroom. I cannot get a read on what's going on here. This is bonkers. 
It's a mystery, Catherine Law. (laughs) Ah, thank goodness. And that's what we like to do here on Crossing the Line. So with that cliffhanger, let's take a brief break, come back and go inside the bedroom as Danielle herself explains what happened. As the detective makes his way into the dining room area en route to the master bedroom, he begins to smell a strong odor of bleach, which tells him what? Somebody had tried, unsuccessfully, to clean up what is a massive crime scene. Along the entryway into the kitchen, on the floor is a knife. It's a kitchen steak knife, serrated, with blood on it. On the kitchen entry wall, shoulder height, There is blood spatter on the jam and one long blood smear on the left side. Near the stairs on the opposite side is a pile of blood-soaked towels. There's also a mop inside a bucket of pink liquid nearby. In that pile of blood-soaked towels is Mike's shirt, which is soaked with blood. There's a tear in the shirt where Mike was stabbed in the shoulder. This sounds like battle royale. You look at the scene and it appears there was a fight, a struggle. Mike got stabbed and was able to walk around for a time as he bled out. That's what it seems like. Now, over in the kitchen sink, there are three more knives. All of them have blood stains. The living room carpet has bloody footprints near the couch with more leading to that foyer area where Mike lies dead. The master bedroom, let's just say, has blood everywhere. There's also a pair of folded up women's white and black plaid pants covered in blood. The bathroom door looks to be busted open. An attempt was also made inside the bedroom to clean up all the blood. This entire scene, every bit of it, gives the indication contradicting what Danielle has said that Michael Redlick could not have possibly stabbed himself unless he stabbed himself, bled, and then smeared that blood all over the house and on Danielle. And then he went around with some bleach and tried to clean it up. Exactly. Exactly. It just just doesn't seem like- It's not adding up. Yeah. So let's move on to the autopsy. Of note, Mike's left arm has bruises consistent with defensive wounds. There are fingernail impressions on his inner left forearm. Remember that detail, please. A black and blue injury on the inside of Mike's upper lip. There's a wound on Mike's shoulder near his armpit. It's a stab wound for sure, just as Danielle had said. Quote, there are no signs of any heart attack, the pathologist tells the detective. What's also interesting is, according to the pathologist, Mike would have died within five to six minutes of his injuries by bleeding out. And he could have theoretically walked around the house during this time, which it appears he did do. The pathologist also finds egg whites on Mike's pants. The cause of death is ruled a stab wound to the torso with the manner of death ruled homicide. The stab wound was not self-inflicted, the pathologist contends, though there is no explanation in the report how the pathologist came to that conclusion, being that the evidence, Danielle's statement, contradicts this. It's almost like a game of Clue or something. It's like Michael with the blood and the master bedroom and there's egg whites. Like there's so many elements. So Danielle has some explaining to do, but look at this for a moment from a different point of view. I think 
With most cases of this nature, early assumptions are made. For example, based on the initial crime scene observations and the autopsy, it is assumed that Danielle is lying right away. She is viewed as guilty of killing this guy based solely on what it looks like, not what she has said. So the presumption is that Danielle, without knowing anything about her or the history of the marriage, is a lying killer. There is that implicit bias I talk about from time to time. If you stop the story right here and you don't go into any backstory or anything, this looks like they got into a fight or she decided she wanted to kill him, stabbed him. Somehow there are eggs involved and that she sort of made all of this up about an altercation or, you know, just murdered him in cold blood. Like it could be as simple as that. A lot of cold blood, I might add. (laughs) Right. But let's dig into it a little bit more. Mike Redlick had once worked in administrative sales for the Memphis Grizzlies, an NBA team. At the time of his death, Mike was a University of Central Florida official. Get this, though. Mike was previously married to, drumroll, please, Danielle's mother. No. <laughs> yes. No. No. Yes. No. Florida. No. I, I'm telling you, I, I, I do not make things up. I mean, this is Florida. What? This only happens in Florida. Can you imagine? So now Mike married a stepdaughter. It's been reported Cute. that the marriage to the mother was a financial contract, whatever the F that means. Yeah, but, but all marriage certificates are just a financial contract. <laughs> like what? Good point, Captain Law. Good point. Ooh. The mother and Mike had been married several years. Danielle was Mike's stepdaughter before she became his wife. And remember now, there's a 21-year age difference between the two of them. Wow. But here's more grist for the devil's advocate murder mill. Two hours before she contacted 911, Danielle had been on a dating app scrolling. Her phone records prove that. She had told police initially that she couldn't find her phone, which is why she waited the 11 hours to call 911. Let's go to Danielle herself talking about how she met Mike. I can't wait to hear this. My mother and my stepfather had split up after 20 years and um, my mom met Michael and they started dating. And um, she discovered shortly after they were dating that she had an aggressive stage four breast cancer. She only had so long to live. And so they got married in, in Vegas. And within three to six months after that, she passed away. They had been living at home together with my two younger siblings. I'm the oldest of five, actually. Uh, so after my mother passed, um, the two younger children were, st- were in high school, my younger brother and sister. They were living in the home with Michael and my mother. And so after she passed, my younger brother went to live with my stepfather, back with him. And asked me if I wanted to move in, that he would continue to rent the home that they were renting so that my sister could at least finish um, another year of high school where she was. And so I agreed. And I was working and going to school at the time. And that's kind of how things got started. We were just kind of handling the domestic duties with the kids, sort of. And I was working and he was encouraging me professionally and sort of became friendly, was very supportive. And, you know, there's time of loss for both of us and we sort of bonded 
and eventually it turned into a romantic relationship. I was going to school and working part-time at, at one point, or at that time, and he started coming up to the place that I worked. I was a bartender at night, so he started coming up to um, all the shifts that I was working and just visiting with me. And after that, he started inviting me to do things, more things together, and, and I grew to enjoy it. Um, he was kind of worldly and smart, so these are new and exciting things for me. So at some point, it turned into a, a romantic relationship. She goes on to say it took years before they became romantic. It doesn't sound like it's just contractual if she's referring to him as her stepfather. Like she would say my mom's husband. Yeah, I, I, this, there's some stuff going on here that smells. And at the risk of judging a, quote, murder victim, end quote, what she describes sounds a lot to me like, well, grooming. This was his stepdaughter. He was helping her find work through his enormous list of connections, working for the NFL at one time and later the NBA. He was also paying for everything, houses, apartments, cars, spending money, and travel. After the jet setting, paid romantic dinners and trips and love bombing, Danielle explains, they get married. Soon after that, she adds, Mike the Casanova becomes Mike the wife beater. And if I can generalize for a moment, this behavior falls in line with what is a clear domestic violence problem within some pro sports cultures. Let's listen to Danielle explain one of those beatings, which left her with severe injuries. Um, I was in the master bedroom and I was doing some yoga because you have a spacious bedroom. And he came in one day and he was standing in the doorway and he was making comments and comes over to me and he starts grabbing at me and you know, I'm pushing him away because he's starting to hurt me. And he gets frustrated and angry and hits me with the back of his hand and hit me in the face when I was struggling. He was trying to take my pants off and I was struggling to get away from him. Um, his hand, he hit me back of his hand. That is one incident over the course of their marriage and relationship, she says, among so many, it is hard for her to recall all of them. She provided names of friends and family who backed up the fact that she had frequent injuries. I don't want to come across as speaking ill of the dead, and I am a staunch advocate for crime victims' rights. But I like to look at an entire picture when someone is accused of murder and domestic violence is a part of that case. Justifiable homicide comes into play. Defined by Cornell Law School, justifiable homicide reads like this, quote, the killing of a person in circumstances which allow the act to be regarded in law as without criminal guilt, end quote. These are not crimes committed during the heat of passion or with diminished capacity. So let's keep that clear. Now we come to what Danielle says happened on the night Mike wound up dead. She's being questioned by her attorney here. Walk in the front door, my husband's sitting on the, the white couch in the front room, and he says, you better have a good excuse or lie as to where you've been. What do you take that to be? What do I take that to be? Right. Um, a sarcastic, snide comment. How does that make you feel hearing this comment from him? That we're still not getting to a point where we can speak civilly. And was this comment with your daughter around or is she elsewhere at this point? She was there. Danielle says she told Mike 
She didn't want to get into an argument with the kids around. So she left with the kids to drop them off somewhere. When she returns, nobody is home. Danielle jumps in the shower. As she is showering, Mike arrives home. He's been fixated that day on her cheating on him with her, quote, boyfriend, as he calls the person. Though, I did not see any proof of her having a boyfriend. He pulls out his phone and he tells me, I don't know if he's actually doing it, that he's videotaping me, or recording me, rather. And uh, he says, I'm going to send this to you. Let me get one last look at you. I'm going to send this to your boyfriend. And he starts saying a lot of vulgar comments, threats. Do you remember what he's saying? Yes. And how did that affect you hearing what he had to say? Um, distressed, um, afraid, distressed, worried, nervous. What was he saying? Uh, he just started, he was saying vulgar things. Um, I hope he, you know, I hope he Fs the, sh the shit out of you and then beat your face in and then I'm going to beat both your faces in. How about that? Mike leaves the bathroom. Danielle dries off and goes to get dressed. Mike follows her as she makes her way around the house, she claims. He berates her, calling her names, threatening to take the kids and house and leave her penniless and send her back to where she came from. And I might just stop there and say, that is a classic line that abusers use. I'll send you back to where you came from. Especially when they're the breadwinner and, yep. you know, presumably as a stay-at-home mom, if she married him when she was very young and had these kids and stuff. So true. We've heard it on this show. We've talked about yeah. it on this show. I mean, we, we go yeah. back to that um, Petite Jasmine case. Mm -hmm. We're hearing mm -hmm. some of the same kind of instances in this case that we heard in that case. And whereas in her case, she was able to leave early on, like, Many women don't have a way to support themselves, and so they don't leave. Or they take seven times to leave, and they keep going back and back and back. Danielle gets away from him and hides in a closet in one of the kids' bedrooms. She's there for 10 minutes. Mike takes her phone and heads out the door to go to one of the kids' football games. Danielle pleads with him for her phone back. He says he'll throw it in the water if he chooses to. So she heads back into the house. I grab some eggs and I bring them out to the front and throw them at his car. Mike gets out of the car and goes toward her. They don't get into it there. They actually go to the football game in separate vehicles. Back at home later, Danielle is sitting at the breakfast bar when Mike comes into the kitchen and, quote, takes out his bottle of vodka, pours a drink, and starts staring at her, end quote intimidation that is so yes that is so vicious yep and he says aren't you afraid to be home alone with me tonight without the kids can you repeat that he says aren't you afraid to be home alone with me without the kids when you hear that comment what goes into your mind here we go and i said uh actually as a matter of fact yes danielle is eating mcdonald's mike walks up to the table grabs her phone and her hamburger she gets a sense that he is feeling the liquor now. He steps back, takes a bite, and spits the food at her. She then stands and walks into the kitchen. Mike comes up from behind and grabs her. She trips and falls to the ground. Mike strikes her in the back of the head. Um, I try and get up. And Are you able to? He's right on top of me, so no, not all the way. How were you positioned then at that point? Um, just... I was on my knees, so as I was coming up, 
grabbed me by the collar. I felt our heads collide. And at that point, I grabbed the center island and I reach up to pull myself up to face him this way. And um, that's when he takes his right hand. So he grabs me here and slams me down onto the center island counter. Danielle says she was, quote, under attack. Mike has complete control of her. Remember, he's much bigger than her. Mm-hmm. She's pinned by the weight of his body. He's straddling and beating her. He cuts off her oxygen at one point by covering her nose and mouth with his hands. She's powerless. That's terrifying. I can't really do anything. He's got me pinned and I can't move. And I'm, I'm trying to wiggle out. Are you able to? No. Is there any conversation going on at this point? I can't speak, no. Are you able to breathe? No. I tried to take like three or four breaths and I couldn't even get a breath. So what do you do? What are you doing? All I can do. So I'm, I've got a free arm here and um, the drawer in front of me is the only thing I can do. And I know that there's items in there. One of those items is a knife, obviously. And I want to just point out here, Remember, there's injuries inside of Mike's arms where she was grabbing at him, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. I think what I notice about her retelling is how tired she sounds. There is little doubt to me that this wasn't the first time this had happened. This was par for the course of their relationship. But this level of rage that he shows that night, it scares her. This situation is unlike the other times. His behavior has escalated. Just like we always say, this kind of behavior does escalate. Maybe it's because he decided to like get wasted as he's intimidating her and being violent toward her. Whatever it is, it always escalates. Right. We always say this. This kind of behavior never de-escalates, right? Mm-hmm. It always mm-hmm. gets worse. Goes one direction. She grabs a knife from the drawer, really her only mode of defense. Mike puts his hand under her chin and pushes her head back. She raises the knife and stabs at him without being able to see where she is stabbing. It's clear her lawyer designed the questioning to imply self-defense. And if we are to believe Danielle, what she did would certainly qualify as kill or be killed. I mean, even before that, when he's covering her mouth and her nose so she can't breathe, like from that point on, I mean, one could make an argument that it's before that when he's beating her in the back of the head. But from that moment, you know he is trying to kill her. And where she stabs him in the arm, right? I mean, it's clear she's not looking at where she's striking. I've interviewed a lot of people and I've heard a lot of lying. And when you listen to her in this testimony, I mean, I can't see where she's lying about any of this. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. strike me as someone who's making this up. You know, the raw emotion in her voice. The other thing, too, she was 21 when they got married. You know, he was married to her mom, stepdad, weird situation. Florida. years older than her. Florida, you think, floozy, bimbo, blonde, whatever, right? And looking at her, she actually, that's not what she looks like. And not that you can necessarily tell who someone is from what they look like, but She's got sort of salt and pepper, short cropped hair. She seems like a very level-headed, even keel person. After stabbing Mike once, Danielle is able to get away. And here she is again. I run. I run the opposite direction. I thought he was still coming after me. 
So what does he do when the knife goes into his body, when you stab him, what is his reaction? He just, he backs away at that point and he sort of backs away this way and I, I ran the opposite direction. She's now in the bathroom. Mike is walking around the house, yelling, raging, bleeding. Mike had broken the door into the bathroom the previous day, along with other doors, she says, many times. Danielle is hiding in the closet in the bathroom. Mike rages for another 15 minutes. Then Mike goes quiet. At first, she thinks he left. After not hearing anything for quite a while, she manages to walk stealthily out of the bathroom. She sees blood everywhere. Then she calls out his name. Not getting a response, she searches and finds him in the foyer, on the ground, dead. Danielle is grilled by the prosecution during her second-degree murder trial in July 2022. But she holds firm on her account, and they cannot crack her. To me, that's a really good sign that someone is telling the truth. I mean, we talk all the time about when people are changing their story and they decided to make up a better one than they told the first time. Like, that's when you can tell somebody is really lying because memory and imagination, of course, as we know, come from two different parts of the brain. So she's remembering this. It's much easier to stay consistent, right? Yeah. She has one truth and she tells it. And it really, she never deviates from that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too is like, she's already had the experience of having to hide in the closet before the stabbing took place. So it makes sense that she was just like hiding and waiting for him to stumble off drunkenly or go to sleep or whatever. And he just died instead, apparently. And really, we could ask the question, okay, she waits 11 hours, right? Uh, mm-hmm. she, she definitely goes on a dating app to scroll. <laughs> Why does she do this? Let's hope so for her. You know, Wait, she actually did? Yep. She did that. Wait. But, but why does she do this? Wait, what? Yeah. They, they proved with phone records that after he was dead, she had went on a dating app and started scrolling. And that she waited 11 hours to call 911. So Ice cold. Go get it, girl. Well, I don't know if that's ice cold or that is a tortured, frightened, no, totally. abused woman saying, that's the last time he hits me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sits back and just waits for him to die. Yeah, kind of can't blame her. We've talked a little bit about this on the show as well, but the murder-suicide situation we had in the apartment below us were attempted murder-suicide. The suicide was successful. The murder was not. But our downstairs neighbor, the husband, had attacked the wife and shot her and almost killed her. And she's had many surgeries and is sort of putting her life back together, still lives in the same apartment. But we all, as her neighbors, were so relieved that the guy was dead and she wouldn't have to worry about him getting out of jail in a few years, coming back to her. And actually, like, that's something she expressed to us as well. It was kind of, like, nice to hear her say in a weird way of being like, I'm, you know, I'm free of him and I don't have to worry about him. Right. I don't have to worry anymore. Yeah. Right. Because I can't leave him. It's hard to, you know, be out on my own, all of those different thoughts and feelings. But now it's like I have the opportunity to allow this guy to die. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm in. Really, truly be free. I'm in this, right? She's Mm -hmm. already in this, right? She knows Mm -hmm. she's in the shit here with this. Yeah. I'm just speaking the facts as they were revealed in this case about this guy. Mm -hmm. And I have no tolerance for abusers of women, period. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Her public defender put it rather plainly in the end, saying, yes, Danielle lied about the stabbing at first. She tampered with evidence. Quote, but that stabbing was a culmination of a long period of domestic abuse, end quote. Let's take another short break here, come right back and finish this up. And you might just be surprised by the conclusion. In the circuit court of the Ninth Judicial Circuit in and for Orange County, Florida, case number 2019, CF18460, State of Florida versus Danielle Justine Redland. Verdict as to count one, we, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. So say we all sign juror back. She is convicted of tampering with evidence. I mean, it's better than murder one if you're just out here defending yourself. In early August 2022, she is sentenced to time served and probation. Danielle's stepdaughter did not see the verdict as just. Her attorney read a statement from her in court as Danielle cried, claiming the 18-year-old woman now lives in fear of being murdered herself by Danielle. And I'll ask Catherine to please read a portion of that same statement here. You may all be fooled by the incredible mask this woman presents to you all, but I am not. My father did not get away in time, and I am so worried for my brother. Judge, please make some kind of stipulation that Danielle not be allowed near myself and my sister. Some see only what they are shown by very manipulative parents. Abusers are good at hiding the abuse, while victims are good at not wanting the kids to see it. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, whether it's mommy and daddy are just having a fight, whether, I mean, these are obviously older kids than that, but, you know, putting makeup on a bruise. There's always manipulation in these cases. The father has manipulated Danielle into staying with him. I'm sure he's manipulating the kids. There's messy stuff in families. Look at it this way, right? Your kids are in the next room. You're in the room with your wife, who you are abusing. And I'm not saying this mm-hmm. happened in this case. I'm, I'm giving an example. But, okay, maybe you're not beating her ass in the living room while yeah. the kids are in another room. Right. But you're whispering in her ear, listen, you know what? If you don't go to bed now, I will kill you. I will strangle you in your sleep. And honestly, like, that's something that happened with these neighbors downstairs. We live in a corner unit in the building. And the girl who lived next to them was like, I could always hear her yelling at him, but I never heard him yelling back. And I said, that's because he would talk to her in this horrible low tone, saying the worst things I've ever heard a human say to another human being. There you go. Just the low tone. Or like she said in this case, staring at her while he's mainlining vodka. You know, it's not always a slap. It's It's not always a beating. Right. It's emotional abuse. We use statistics sometimes on the show to give perspective. I've likely given this information before on Crossing the Line, but in 2017, the last time solid data was collected, 58% of the 87,000 women intentionally killed were murdered by an intimate partner or other family member. More than half. And while like 87,000 is a big number for one year. Huge. I believe Danielle was a battered woman. I've looked at dozens of these cases and there is a certain way in which a battered woman responds to questioning, a certain way in which she acts and tells her story. Danielle comes out of this believable. 
not only by me, but by a jury. One in four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. 1.3 million women are victims of physical assault by an intimate partner every single year. I just want to end by saying this. If you are a victim of domestic abuse, please call 1-800-799-SAFE. Visit thehotline.org and chat anonymously with someone or text START to 887-88 and seek help. It's out there for you. That's it for this week. Be back here in seven days with another case. Be safe, be aware, and please speak up if you see something that doesn't sit right in your gut. Sources for today's episode come from Danielle Justine Redlick Arrest Warrant Affidavit, State of Florida live feed coverage of Danielle Redlick versus State of Florida, Danielle Redlick sentenced for tampering with evidence by Bob Hazen, WESH.com, Danielle Redlick case, SK Pop 72322 by Kritika Bashin. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.